We're doing things a little different this morning, okay? We've taken a pause from our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark, and we are working our way now through Advent, the four weeks leading up to Christmas. And we're following the Revised Common Lectionary. And the lectionary is followed by many different denominations, many different church affiliations across the world. And what happens is in the, in the lectionary, there's usually an Old Testament reading, a New Testament reading, maybe a Psalms reading, and then something looking forward. So this is what it's kind of like, okay? For those of you who've read Lord of the Rings, all the wise among you, and for those of you who maybe who've read, who've read, let's just use Harry Potter, okay? Harry Potter, seven books, right? Lord of the Rings, three different books. Now listen, if you were to jump in to Lord of the Rings, and you read page 100, and then you read page 1,000, and then you read page 1,500, what you're doing is you're reading out of three different books, okay? You're reading sections out of three different books, and you might not understand what the heck is going on in the story. Same thing with Harry Potter. If you read chapter one, and then you read chapter 32, and then you read chapter 75 of book three or whatever, you aren't really going to understand what's going on in the book. Now listen, here's my, this is what, that's what we're doing this morning. We're reading Old Testament, we're reading New Testament, we're reading something that's talking about the future. We're kind of doing that this morning, and here's my contention. Here's what I believe's happened. I believe the majority of you have read the Bible like that your whole life. You have in a sense, I hate to be offensive, kind of, you have no idea what the Bible's really about. But you read these chunks of scripture in there and you try to understand what they're about, but you don't understand the overarching narrative that everything is ultimately about. And it's my contention that many of us, what we have done is we've turned the Bible into a book of do's and don'ts. We've reduced the Bible to an ethical how-to guide, a rule book for life. What's the Bible say about marriage? What's the Bible say about kids? What's the Bible say about sin? What's the Bible say about repentance? What's the Bible say about the end times? What's the Bible say about sex? What's the Bible say about whatever? And we go and we look up in the Bible, everything the Bible has to say about these things, and we've gotten this ethical how-to guide. We've used the Bible more like a dictionary instead of how the Bible is meant to be foundationally and primarily used. If you understand the Bible as merely a list of do's and don'ts, which is what I grew up understanding. I grew up understanding, I really didn't have, I heard a bunch of stories. There are all these little stories in the Bible. Those were kind of cool, but what's, I had no idea what the purpose of the Bible was. To tell me to be a good boy, I guess. And then I grew up singing, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. So my understanding was the Bible was all about Jesus loving me. So basically the Bible's kind of a lot about me. And I'm so glad Jesus loves me. The Bible does tell me so. But I didn't understand, and that, that really shrinks things down, right? That's not a very attractional picture of the Bible or of God. That's not very, there's not much grandeur in that, right? If, if we think, think about it like this. We've just read in Mark where we're supposed to teach our kids and we're supposed to love God with all our minds, Right? If I've reduced the Bible down to Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, that is a great reduction of everything the Bible has to stay, and that's going to try to reduce God and reduce myself down, and that's impossible to love God with all my mind if I'm reducing everything down to something so simple as Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now, 
what is the Bible then? If it's not just ethical how-to, it's not just Jesus loves me, this I know, what is the Bible ultimately about? Well, the Bible is primarily a story. And it is a love story. It's, hmm, a rather dark love story, if I, would ha- if I could say that. But it is a love story. Now, let me pray. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into this. But we're going to do things differently. I'm going to have the reading of Scripture in the middle of my sermon um, instead of before it. But let me go ahead and pray. Father, we uh, invite your presence here. We thank you for the work you've been doing at Sacred City and bringing leaders um, to our church. We, 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 we just want to sit back and say thank you. And we also want to uh, remember Jesus. And we want to remember the story. And we want to look forward to his second coming. And I pray now that you would help me. You would think through my mind and speak to my vocal cords. That you'd help us hear maybe the story in a new way this morning. I pray this would be for your glory and our good in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, why is it important that we understand that the Bible is primarily and foundationally a story? Now, there's a lot of research that's been going on uh, around today that's telling us that human beings, their behavior is primarily guided and influenced by narrative, by story. When most of us get together with our families at Thanksgiving, what do we do? We share stories. If you go to a new culture, if you go, I'm going to Kenya in January, one of the first things I need to know is what's the narrative? What's the story? I talked to Joshua this week, and one of the places that we're going, everyone in Kenya um, points to these folks and say, that's the poor people. That's the people who never have enough food because that's, it's the, it, it gets the least rainfall in all of Kenya and all of Africa gets the least rainfall. And so these, this group of people has just, their narrative is we're poor. Their narrative is we can't farm and we can't do anything. And, and that's their narrative. And that narrative shapes who they are. It shapes how they see the world. And there's a lot of research going around today that more than just your ethical know-how, more than just propositions that you've said those are true, more than that, you're shaped by your story and the, the, the way you see the world. The majority of the things you do, the way you behave, isn't the result of a conscious deliberation of your mind. Very rarely do you make a decision, day in and day out, let me think what the right thing to do is, and then I will respond. Typically, we're responding very fluid, and the way we respond isn't through the things that we've assented to in our mind, but it's through what story of the world are we believing. The way we live comes from how we imagine the world to be. So this is what I'm saying. Most of your behavior is more informed by your imagination, by necessarily your, your cognitive, your intellect, okay? It's more shaped by your desires than your will. What is the world like? What is it all about? What does a good life look like? See, these are all major pieces of a story, and how you live is determined by what kind of story you see yourself a part of. This is true of everyone. Listen, every single human being, every culture is shaped by a story. And even right now, there's many different stories that are going on in our world. Now listen, I'm just going to, I don't want to bring, I don't want to, I'm going to bring this up just to show you this. Not to say where I land, I hope. Lots of stuff going on with terrorism and gun control debates, right? You have people on both sides of the issue. 
You can give them facts. Facts don't change anything. No one's opinion is changed by you quoting that article on Facebook, right? Why? Because it's a narrative. It's a story that's underlined the facts, and they believe a certain narrative of the world, and so they think that guns should be banned, or they think, think everyone and their children should have guns, right? You can't change a person's thinking just by giving them facts. I hope you're learning this. There's a, narr- a way of seeing the world that's underneath all of that, okay, that's influencing them. Now, we all have these things. We might not even know it. They're influenced by our family of origin. They're influenced by our culture. They're influenced by how we were raised and what kind of theology we're having, we have. They're influenced by all these things. And I'm going to tell you that we might not even be aware of it, but some story of the world is capturing our imaginations, is stirring our emotions and leading us to live our lives in a certain way. That's why new information doesn't really change us. You can quote a Bible verse and you can learn some new theology and it might not actually change your hearts. You actually need a new story. And that's what Advent is all about. That's what the Bible is all about. What I'm going to be saying this morning is that the Bible is the greatest story of all time and it should shape our lives into a certain type of people. But I believe most of us don't understand the story very well. And so our imaginations haven't been captured by the story of God in the scriptures. They're instead captured by some other lesser story. Maybe the American story. Maybe I could go on and on and on with other stories. So I'm praying this morning that our, that our imaginations could maybe be stirred and could be captured by the God and his story this morning. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to see three pieces of the story. We're going to try to analyze them a little bit in detail. And then we're going to talk about the story of God. Now listen, just before I jump into this, there's a lot of different ways to talk about the story of God. God uses several different pieces of narrative to describe. If you want to study this out, the study of it is called biblical theology. Okay, systematic theology is studying the Bible in a systematic way, piece by piece. Biblical theology is, in a sense, studying the Bible with the grain, okay, from beginning to end. What's the narrative it's telling us? And I was reminded this this week of one of my favorite ways to understand the story of God. Very simple, okay? And I was reminded because we were walking through the Christmas tree farm, and my three-year-old daughter, Piper, said that she was scared to be in the forest because there are snakes in the forest. And I didn't even have to, I was like trying to figure out a way, you know, how I was going to respond. And before I even had time to respond, without literally as much of a second of a thought, my eight-year-old son, Javin, replied to her, don't worry, Piper, dad is like Jesus. He's a snake crusher. (laughs) And I looked at Amanda and I was like, that was awesome. <laughs> now, first off, did you know Jesus was a snake crusher? Okay. Well, one of the ways that we describe the story of God at home, and this really happened about five years ago when I realized my son, Jesus was getting boring in his storybook Bible, and he was more attracted to Thor and the Hulk and all these different superheroes. So then I was like, this is not good. Because I know my son's imag- I want my son's imagination to be captured by the story of God. So ev- what I began to do is think of ways to describe the scriptures in a way that's better than Thor. 
All right? So we would always argue about which superhero is better, and then I'd be like, but Jesus could kick his butt, right? And I'd always end everything like that. Then I started thinking about, what is the story of God? And here is one of the ways to understand the story. Here's big, make it really simple. Here's the story of the Bible. Kill the snake, get the girl. Crush the dragon, rescue the princess. Now you might see some parallels with a lot of different stories <laughs> throughout the histories. Why? Because this story is the one true story that other, all the other true stories, or all the other fancy stories, fanciful stories point to, right? Kill the snake, get the girl. Rescue the princess, crush the dragon. Now let me lay it out for you really quick. This is what it looks like. God created everything perfect. And in this creation, he made man and woman out of the dust of the ground. And this is what he did. He entered into a covenant with them. Hear that. God, in the beginning, hear the story. God, in the beginning, is married to man and female, male and female. He is married to Adam and Eve. They're in a covenant of love together. They are his covenant people who he loves with his steadfast and forever love. But a snake enters the garden. Satan, a fallen angel, convinces Adam and Eve to commit spiritual adultery on God. They rebel from God and they break his heart. So in the beginning, you see this marriage analogy where God is, has his covenant people and his covenant of love and a snake comes in and they commit spiritual adultery on him. But what happens next is unique. God does not divorce his people. God does not walk away from them. God makes a promise to his adulterous people. God says this, I will send a snake crusher. I will send a man born from a daughter of Eve who will crush the head of the serpent and the serpent will bruise his heel and once and for all, I will win back my people. I am pursuing a bride and I will purify her and I will make her right and I will crush the head of the snake and I will get my girl. Now all of this happens in the first three books, first three chapters of the book of Genesis. But then this is where the story you, you watch a movie, we got two hours to watch this movie, that's the narrative, oh, now we need to wrap it up real quick. Well, God doesn't tell a story like that, okay? God tells a story where he lays it out and then he spends the next, I don't know how many thousands of years playing it out. And this story gets really, really, really dark. God's adulterous people continue to be adulterous people. They continue to run away from him. God is faithful. He continuously pursues his people, but they just keep cheating on him over and over and over again. Now, I was reading this week a book. Uh, it's a biblical theology book, and it, it's, it's called um, God's Unfaithful Wife. And what I realized was this was a reprinting of the book. Uh, the original title of the book was called Whoredom. <laughs> I was like, that's an awkward book to read on a plane, okay? Like, whoredom. Now, why is it called that? Because over and over and over and over in the Old Testament, God, you, he calls his people whores. He tells them to stop whoring themselves out to other gods. And he says very explicit things that I would feel uncomfortable saying right now. But God is continually faithful and he's continuing pursuing this adulterous, unfaithful bride of his. God chooses. This is what the whole Old Testament's about. 
God chooses Israel to be his faithful bride, but they run away from him. He is faithful to the promise that he made to Adam and Eve and the promise he made to Noah and the promise he made to Abraham and the promise he made to David and the promise he made to Solomon. He's been faithful, 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 but his people are constantly unfaithful. They keep committing spiritual adultery on him. And listen, by the time we come to our first reading of Advent today, we're reading from the book of Malachi. God had allowed his bride, his unfaithful bride, he was kind of so exhausted by their unfaithfulness that he allowed them to be carried off into Babylonian bondage. And they weren't like, in, they weren't like enslaved in Babylon. They were just engrafted into the culture, a pagan culture. They had, no, they had nothing special about their identity left. Israel was no longer a people. They just became part of the Babylonians. And that's where we read, and we're going to read, this is about 400 years before the, book of, before the birth of Jesus, this is one of the last things God speaks to his people. This is it's the beginning of a very, very, very dark time in the nation of histories, uh, or in the nation of Israel's history. God's people here, and I'm going to say this, God's people here are a lot like us. They had lost the story. And when you lose the story, your life shrinks See, the story of God is huge because it's all about him and your life expands to him. But when you adopt a lesser story, your life really shrinks. And that's exactly what's happened to the people here in Malachi. Their imaginations were no longer captured by God because they lost sight of his story. And because we're a story-shaped people, everyone lives by some story. Whatever, what inevitably happens is if you don't understand the story of God, your story will be shaped by some lesser story. For the Israelites and for us, most of the time, God was no longer the center of their story. They were. So here, here's where they are. I'm gonna give you the context. Their nation is a wreck. It's gone. It's in Babylon. Solomon's temple had been destroyed. They had a little, a ramshackle, like made, made up temple. The presence of God didn't even come to it anymore. It was, they were spiritually destitute. Their crops had been failing and they were no longer a prosperous nation. This is bad news for the people. And listen, God was letting them go through this bad news so they would cry out. So they would see their spiritual adultery and cry out to their lover, cry out to their husband and say, come rescue us, forgive us for our adultery for running away from you, but that's not what they do. Malachi, if you read through the book of Malachi, it tells us this. This is pretty sad. The priests, in the time of Malachi, they were giving their sick, lame, blind, and stolen offerings in the temple instead of their best. So you're supposed to give your best to God. They'd look and they'd find the crippled lamb and they'd go, I oh, will give this one to God. I'm not, I don't really need it anyways. They would steal other sacrifices and give them to God. That's what they were doing. The priests in the temple had turned aside from the scriptures and they were causing many people to stumble by false teaching. They were literally picking and choosing what parts of the scriptures they wanted to follow. The people were breaking their marriage covenants and being faithless to their wives, and they were robbing, this is what God literally calls them robbers, they were robbing God by not giving their tithes and offerings to God. They were robbing God. So, see, they lost the picture of the, the big picture of the story, and now their lives shrunk. See, they're giving God whatever they had left over. 
See, when we lose the story of God, we lose our way. This is what happens when your life is shaped by a story that is smaller than the one written by God. But when Israel remembers rightly, when they remember who God is and who he is and what he's been doing in their life, then they rise. They are God's adulterous people who he has sought over and over and over again. He has won them time and time again. He has rescued them from drought and famine, from pestilence. He's redeemed them from Egyptian slavery. He's rescued them from enemies countless times. God has loved them with a persistent and costly love. This is the love story of the scripture. God is pursuing his unfaithful bride and he's done it at a great cost to himself over and over and over again. And when Israel remembers that and people when we remember that, we rise. Our story takes on a different shape, a bigger shape. We are glorious people who live lives that reflect the glory of God. They live justly, taking care of the poor. They live morally upright, loving God and their neighbors. They walk with God and show others what a life lived close to God looks like. But when, when we forget, and when Israel forgets, they lose sight of the story of God, their lives shrink. And you can tell they have lost the story because of the way they question God through the book of Malachi. Now, Malachi, I want, you to, I want you to listen to this. All of that stuff that was going on in the book of Malachi, they're no longer special people. They're brought off into Babylon. Listen to what they say, because listen, I think it sounds very familiar to the way many of us speak the thoughts that many of us have. And I think it might show us that our problem is we've lost sight of the story of God. We lost sight of who God is and who we are and what he's doing. Listen to what they say. In Malachi chapter one, verse two, they look around at their nation and at their experiences and they say this, how have you loved us? That was their question to God. How have you loved us? How is this our fault? How have we despised your name in 1.6? In verse, chapter 2, verse 14, they say, why won't you accept our offerings? In verse, chapter 2, verse 17, they say this, why do you let evil people flourish and rule over us? Verse 17, they say, where is the God of justice? In chapter 3, verse 14, they say, what good is it even to serve God? I want you to hear this. They were being ruled by a pagan people and they were looking at their nation and they're looking around and they were saying, how have you loved us? Why are these unjust people ruling over us? Where is the God of justice? And what's so funny is they totally lost sight of the story. Who are they in the story? They're God's adulterous people, but they're God's loved adulterous people who he's consistently and persistently pursued for thousands of years. Now listen, here's what they did. They cried out for justice. Now I know many of us are doing that right now. How can these bad things happen? Or we're looking across the political aisle and we're demonizing the person across the political aisle and we're saying, God, come on, get them, stop them. They're trying to ruin us. But think about this. Think about how audacious a claim. It was for God's adulterous people to cry out for justice. Think about that. If I am guilty of adultery, 
do I really want justice? See, isn't this what happens when we forget the story of God? We think God can clear the world of evil without it ruining us. If we are guilty of spiritual adultery, if we are sinners, how could God judge the unrighteous without wiping us off the face of the earth as well? Well, that's a great problem. And that's, this, this, is gonna turn, this is where God speaks to his people in Malachi chapter three. Julie, if you would come and read this. Yeah, please stand. We'll wake you back up if I put you to sleep. <laughs> Hear the word of the Lord from Malachi 3, verses 1 through 4. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the day of, days of old, as in, in for, former years. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So what does God do? Listen to this. How does God respond to his unfaithful wife, Israel? He gives them another promise. He promises to send them this messenger, right? This book of Malachi, the last Old Testament book of the Bible. God tells his people, I will, serve, I will send a messenger who will come to his temple. What's he saying? He's saying this. The snake crusher is on his way. I will send the snake crusher, and he's going to do two things, it tells us in Malachi. Two complementary works. He will judge Sinners, he will, I'm sorry, he will judge some sinners and he will refine and purify some other sinners. That is to say, he will crush the serpent and crush evil and yet he will rescue his bride. Malachi says that he will come to, quote, purify God's people and once again make them pleasing to the Lord as in the day of, the, as in the day of old. So God is promising to his unfaithful bride that he's going to send someone to come and purify them to help them be a faithful wife again, to purify them from their sins, and he's going to crush the head of the serpent at the same time. So who is this messenger? Who is this snake crusher? This is about 375 B.C. when this was written. Well, I know most of us already know who the snake crusher is, but um, we want to, we, I want to see this played out. So, so we just read a chapter from the Old Testament. Now I want you to see how it plays into a chapter from the New Testament, okay? So we're going to do a little bit of spiritual um, uh, aerobics this morning. I'm going to have you stand up again, and we're going to read another scripture. Come on. See, my sermons don't feel near as long if we do this all the time. <laughs> Hear the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 38. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord 
pair of two, a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed him, them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we see Jesus, the baby Jesus, gets brought to the temple. Malachi said that he would come to the temple, right? We see Jesus get brought to the temple and we hear this prophecy ring out over this little baby Jesus. This child, listen to this, this is, what the, this is what it says. This child is appointed for the fall and rise of many. See, Jesus is the one Malachi prophesied would come. Jesus is the promised judge, refiner, purifier that will make God's people pleasing to the Lord. He is the snake crusher who will win back the girl. But he's got this, he does two things, right? Some will rise because of Jesus and some will be crushed because of Jesus. Some will be rescued as a part of the bride and some will be crushed with the head of the snake. And how will Jesus do this? Right? Jesus doesn't bring a sword. He didn't come with a sword. We've been learning all about him. How is Jesus a snake crusher? How is he going to lift some up and bring some down? Well, it's foreshadowed here in this verse. He says to Mary, a sword shall pierce your very soul. What is he talking about? He's foreshadowing your son, this beautiful what you believe to be, well, it is a perfect baby that you're holding in your arms, the Son of God that you're holding in your arms, this, he will be a sword. There will be a sword that will pierce your own soul. He will raise some up and tear some down. What is he talking about? He's talking about the cross. See, on the cross, Jesus does the two works that Malachi prophesied about. He adopts some, he forgives some, he purifies some, and he destroys some, and he crushes some. Theologians call it propitiation and expiation. That in propitiation, the wrath of God 
is turned away. The wrath of God is absorbed in Jesus. Jesus takes all of God's wrath for all of God, all of the adulterous people who will ever put their faith in Christ. God absorbs their wrath on the cross. See, he does that. But also on the cross, he expiates sin. What does that mean? That means he, he absorbs all of the dirtiness, all of the filth of God's people. That adultery comes with shame and guilt and a sense of dirtiness, and God makes them clean. He, Jesus absorbs all of their dirtiness and purifies them. See, this is a two-work the two work on the cross. Propitiation turns away the wrath. Expiation, he makes us clean. This is the gospel. See, at the cross, Jesus purifies his bride and judges evil. Jesus, the snake crusher, has crushed the snake and rescued the girl. But what does that mean for us now? Let's stand one more time. We're going to read the last verse. Hear the word of the Lord from Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and, be so, be, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness, righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now... Okay, first chapter was before Jesus. It was a promise and a prophesy, prophecy to the, the snake crusher would come and he would do these two works. The second one we saw, Jesus, he's a little bitty baby brought to the temple and they say, this will be for the rising and fall of many people in Israel and a sword will pierce your soul. Now in Philippians, this is post Jesus, life, death, resurrection, Life, death, crucifixion, and resurrection, okay? Jesus already ascended to the right hand of God, and now the apostle Paul is writing to the Philippians. And this is what he says here. He says this, he who began a good work in you will complete it on the day of, our G of Jesus Christ. Now, that is tremendous news. Why is that tremendous news? Because this is what he's saying. You're a part of a story. God is the author, and he has written it, and what he began, he will finish, right? God is outside of time. He's the perfect author. He began it. He will finish it. So that means this. Look back. What has God done? Well, he got, God promised in Malachi. God promised in Luke and Jesus came, right? That's an incontrovertible fact. It's, it's verifiable history. Jesus was prophesied and Jesus came. That should give us great confidence. But this is what he's saying. Paul's saying, but also look forward. The story's not over. Jesus isn't done. The good work he began in us will be finished. And this is exciting. Look what it says. In his day. 
verse six, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, look at this, at the day of Jesus Christ. This should fill our imaginations. When we understand the story of God rightly, it should capture our awe that Jesus Christ has his day coming. Now, that might not get us very excited. We're, we, this whole season is about his birth. Praise God for his birth. Right? We celebrate the day of his birth. We celebrate the day of his death. We celebrate the day of his resurrection. Praise God for all of those things. But Paul is trying to navigate the story of God with the Philippians, and he's trying to tell them the story will be complete on the day of his second coming. That's his day. Man, his birth, his death, his resurrection. That's great, right? Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, but there is a day that has his name on it. That it's the greatest, it's the day the world was created for. The, in the Garden of Eden, God was thinking about the day when everything would be perfectly united and the bride would be united with the groom and the head of the serpent would be obliterated under the boot of Jesus Christ. And the bride would once again be absolutely pure and live forever in eternity with God, our great God and groom, Jesus Christ. There is a day with Jesus' name on it. I couldn't get that out of my head this week. I tried during the Alabama game. But other than that, I couldn't get it out of my head this week. The day of Jesus Christ. How much time do we think about Christmas? How much time do we think about Good Friday? How much time do we think about Easter Sunday? But how much time do we spend thinking about the day of Jesus Christ that is still yet to come? Think about it. The day of his birth, Jesus, the Son of God, becomes like us. He became a man. On the day of his death, Jesus took the wrath of God for us and paid for all of our sins. On the day of his resurrection, Jesus defeated death, hell, and the grave and secured for us eternal life with God and brand new resurrected bodies. But on his day, the day of Jesus Christ, all of the work of Jesus will reach its peak. This should be the most anticipated day in all of our imaginations. We should dwell on this all, literally, we should think about this every day. There's a day coming with Jesus' name on it. The day when everything will be made right. The serpent, that great dragon, will be destroyed forever and we will be made perfect. See, for me, Jesus loves me, this I know, is not that, it doesn't capture my imagination very much. But Jesus rescuing me from the great dragon and adopting me into this family of dragon killers that I get to live out the rest of my life, life slaying dragons. Slaying, that's what we're doing. We're, we're pushing back darkness. 
We're fighting sin. We're rescuing people from the grips of dragons. That's what we get to do. That's the story we're a part of. That captures my imagination. And knowing that all my labor and all my work is not in my own strength, he began the work, he's going to finish the work, that I'm laboring for a great day when all evil will be obliterated. That captures my imagination. One day, Jesus will defeat evil once and for all and he will get his bride. He began it, he'll finish it. He's going to get his girl. And think about it. Where are we at now in this story? God promised to send the snake killer. He did. The snake killer came. His name was Jesus. Jesus cut the head off the snake on the cross. He destroyed death by rising up from the grave. Jesus and the Father sent the Holy Spirit to enable us to believe, to put our faith in Jesus Christ. For many of you in this room, that's, that's in the past, right? You've already, Jesus Christ has already died. He's already been resurrected. He's already done all these things. You've already put your faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit dwells richly in you. Praise God for that. We've been born again by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So where are we at in the story? We've been empowered by God. Look at Philippians verse 9 says, we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to love, so that love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that we may approve what is excellent. That God is at work in us now by the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit to keep us blameless and pure for the day of Jesus Christ. Think about it. We are close to the end. Think about how much of God's story has already been accomplished. Our hope, in a sense, our hope has already been 95% fulfilled. This is far from a wish and a prayer. Oh, I just, I just hope Jesus comes back someday. He was promised. He came. He conquered. He was resurrected. It's history. It's in the history books. He came. He conquered. He's coming. It's fact. He sent the Holy Spirit. Do you know that the Spirit has poured the love of God in your hearts? Do you have a check? Do you feel the Holy Spirit in you? Do you hear the Holy Spirit tell you certain things during the week? Do you respond to the Spirit during worship? That's proof. That's fruit. His second coming isn't a hope, a wish, and a prayer like that. It's something solid. God has already accomplished the majority of his story and we have been written in to one of the last chapters. Now, I don't know how long it's gonna be. It could be a day and it could be another thousand years. But in the history of all things, in, in God's we're at the end. And this should give us great hope and it should really capture our imaginations. And you realize we have this competing story right now. Our culture is after your imagination. Why? Because they want your money. 
And with your imagination, they get your money. And so right now, even in this time of year, especially during this time of year, we have two competing storylines. We have the story of God that we are God's adulterous people, and yet he has pursued us, and he has purified us through the work on the cross, and he has adopted us into his story, and we are sent to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples to point people to Jesus. That's one story. Advent is all about pointing people to Jesus in the story. Or we have the, second, we have the secular story, that you are a consumer, and your whole life is about consuming and happiness is about going to Disney World and about having the best vacations and having the best cars and the best clothes and the best houses. And right now, Christmas is all about spoiling yourself and spoiling your kids and, and walking down and seeing a bajillion things underneath the tree. Why? It's about money. It's about making money. Who, but listen, do you see? These are two competing stories you're made in the image of God over here, but you've rebelled, right? We've all been unfaithful to our spouse, and yet Jesus came to rescue us. He's the snake crusher who came to rescue us. And over here, you're a consumer, and you find your identity through spending. The better you are, the more money you make. The more money you make, the more money you spend, the happier you'll be. Or a few of us in here, the more money you save in the bank, the bigger that number gets the more secure you'll feel. Two competing stories. And I'm going to ask you right now, I'm not going to ask you, do you believe the story? I'm going to ask you, if you took the temperature of your life, does your life reflect this story or this story? Are you a self-sacrificial dragon killer out making disciples? Or are you a consumer consumed with your own personal comfort. Take your pulse. Our house, our homes, should be telling this story if we're believers in Jesus Christ, this Christmas season. This is the season we celebrate the snake crusher. That's how I'm going to tell it. You can tell it however you want. Little baby Jesus. The snake crusher. Listen, if you, this is your first time here at Sacred City Church, I want you to hear, well, um, this story is the gospel. And the gospel is that we are God's adulterous people, that we're sinners. And the only way to get back into him is to send his perfect son who never was adul adulterous. Jesus was the perfect wife to the father in one sense. He was perfectly obedient. He does what we don't do and he lived the perfect life. And yet he took the cross and he, he took our wrath that, that was deserved for us. He took our sin and shame upon himself, was crucified defeated it and was resurrected. And now, when we put our faith, when we believe and put our trust, like lean on Jesus for all of our identity, God washes us clean and he looks at us just like he looks like Jesus and he adopts us in and he literally writes us into the story. And, and there's a sense where every single person is in the story. It's just like, who do you want to be? Do you want to be on the side that's victorious? in the new heavens, the new earth? Or do you want to be on the side that gets crushed? Because ultimately that's what happens at the end. And God sets up his kingdom on this earth. So I'm inviting you, if you're new here, I'm inviting you into this story. I'm inviting you in to believe the gospel. Put your faith in Jesus Christ this morning. And this meal that we're about to partake in, this is what it's all about. Like, the story isn't make-believe, 
because Jesus came in the flesh. And this bread was given to us so we're not just up in our heads, but we have something to put into our hands. That Christ was the word in flesh. The word became incarnate. See, the story entered into the story. The, the author entered into the story. Jesus, and he puts it into our hands. And we take the body that's the, the, the bread that's the body of Christ and we dip it in the, the wine or the grape juice that's the blood of Christ and we're reminded of the work that Christ has done for us. I'm gonna pray. Father, we thank you. I thank you for the work that you've done. Thank you for how you've written this story. And I pray that more and more and more our lives would be shaped by your story and not our culture story or not our family of origin story. That we would see ourselves as written into the greatest story that's ever told. And Father, we would turn to you as your adulterous people and you would make us pure. You would purify your bride like you promised to do. We pray all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.